Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I am here in the podcast studios with Sebastian Modak, Megan Spurl, podcast newbie. Say hi, Megan. Hi. And Betsy Blumenthal. All of those folks are editors for Traveler. Megan is our community editor. You haven't met her. She's new. You're kind of new-ish at this point. Right? New-ish. <laughs> new-ish. And so this is the home team. We are here this week to talk about a set of stories that went up a package, we call it, in the biz, last week on the theme of sacred travel. And Seb, you were the editor for this package. So I wanted to start with the overview, which is we're a fancy, modern, sophisticated bunch of urban folk. What are we doing writing about sacred travel? What's that all about? Yeah, I mean, I think that was the first question we asked ourselves, too, when we were trying to figure out the kinds of stories that would be in this. And I think we decided that it was a huge umbrella of stories. I think when you look at travel, the history of travel, some of the earliest documented forms of traveling, you know, besides the great migration of humanity, but like after civilization came travel, and with that travel, a lot of it was based in the sacred, the religious. It was the pilgrimage to a sacred site, or it was the movement of people and the spreading of a religion and, and how that travel affected that. And I think when we started thinking about it from a modern lens, we realized that a lot of different things could fall under the term sacred travel. It's not just the pilgrimages, though it is that. So that's why we have stories, and we'll get into these, but that's why we have stories about the Hajj and about the Camino de Santiago and like all these things that are very you know, rooted in history. But then it's also, like I don't consider myself a religious person, but I've had religious experiences on the road many, many times. And I think that's another way to interpret this is that it's just the kind of experience you have while traveling that can't be really explained or tangible, or at least explained tangibly. You can't really, it's not a souvenir you can show somebody, but it's something that's like with you forever based on an experience that you've had. So that's why we have stories about people confronting things they might not be comfortable with on the road and it leading to certain epiphanies and revelations about their place in the world and their place on this spiritual plane and its connection to other spiritual planes. So basically, all that is to say that it is like a huge topic with very concrete roots, but I think in this day and age, it's grown to to be a lot less in a box or in a, in a church, so to speak. Although church, I mean, this is something that we actually covered and had some work on that spiritual travel is a very, very common form of travel still, including the type where you're just landmarks and uh, sites that people visit, whether it's Angkor Wat or whether it's Notre Dame are religious places, right? Mm -hmm. And they are still, in many cases, functioning religious places, not necessarily in every case, but but there are plenty of those. And there's some interesting, um, I think Laura's piece talked in yeah, an interesting absolutely. way about that. But there's also, or we had some work on the, on the Hajj, which is not just those things and an explicitly religious ex experience, but one at scale and one that is also a huge business, which I thought Catherine got into. And like logistical marvel, too. You yeah. Know, to get that many people in a single place every year. Yeah. But yeah, and I think I think it is that. But I think it's, so yes, the churches we visit, it's also, you know, at the last minute I pulled in a story that I had written months before this because it fit there, too. And it was about having an experience of mindfulness in a forest. And I think that can be just as a religious experience as these more, you know, the conventional religious side of it. And like Megan wrote an incredible story, if you guys haven't read it yet, about traveling to a place in Mexico. And you should get into this as, as we get into this. 
um, witches. Um, yeah, and uh, the kind of that's known as the land of sorcerers, <laughs> and there you kind of see this whole other form of like syncretism of, of religions of the the animist beliefs that came from ancient history with the, a very strong Catholic community that you'd find in Mexico, and we saw a similar thing in Sar- with a story that one of our writers, Elliot Stein, wrote about in Sardinia of this kind of exorcism that takes place in this tiny town every year annually. So it's just like, it's the conventional, it's the unconventional. It's the clear cut of the the Hajj, the, the, this tenant of Islam that everybody is supposed to follow based on the Quran. And then it's the kind of left field, like you stumbling upon something and just being like, I need to struggle to understand this. So I'm going to go outside of the conventional to start with. Megan, you are the only person I know, I think, that I'm aware of, who's ever met a head sorcerer. <laughs> what is what is it like so to meet serious. a head sorcerer? I, I definitely never expected to meet someone who would formally refer to himself as the head sorcerer. You know, I went to this small town called Catamaco in the Mexican state of Veracruz, and um, every single year there's a national congress of or an annual congress of sorcerers, and they have a black mass, which is where they have all these ancient rituals that take place. A lot of it starts in this cave on a hill behind the town. And at midnight, unmarried women take a bath in honey to hopefully bring them like marriage in the new year. And it's there are all these rituals that sound Wait, like that's, I need an that's invite weird. This. That's <laughs> weird. This yeah, like I know we don't all do that. This I is this it? is all stuff that didn't even make it into the story, I by know. the way. So you guys can imagine <laughs> how good the story it does, is. It does. The love I, honey makes a, a, an appearance oh, at the true, very true. beginning. I do have a little bottle of it at home. But yeah. um yeah, and so someone leaves that event every single year, and that's the head sorcerer. And he's usually appointed by the community, and he's someone who's respected, a respected figure for the services he does. And so the guy that we met had been the head sorcerer for many years in the past um, and had led this black mass ceremony that happens once a year. And then throughout the year, you can go to his house and have, like, different cleanses or treatments, or he was... You know, he talked to us a bit about what he does, but he was also pretty big. Um, The one woman was there for an exorcism. A woman was waiting in front of us. We saw her leave, and when she came back out, he mentioned that's the treatment she had had. We went and had an overall spiritual cleansing, and other people go to this devil's cave that he has below. (laughs) I want you to tell us about the experience of the cleansing because, you know, I thought that was really interesting and again don't know a lot of people who've had that but when you say it's a black mass when you talk about exorcisms this is not sort of devil worship right like or is it um there's some of both i think this was something that i had to spend a bit of time there really trying to understand is you know people who don't live in the town call it the town of sorcerers and then the women are the witches and when you get there everyone identifies themselves as something else so you have people who actually call themselves sorcerers, usually not at first, but you find out later that's how they identify themselves. And they do worship the devil and nature. And sometimes you'll, you know, hear the name of a Catholic saint in a ritual they do. Like it's kind of a mishmash of a lot of different things that originally stems from indigenous practices. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who identify as shamans and they're very clear, like they don't practice black magic. They only do white magic. It's a lot about nature and cleansing. And then you have a lot of other people who are kind of, you know, spiritual guides or like cleansers healers or, or healers. Or like there's kind of a lot of different categories of people that are classified under sorcerers. But a head sorcerer like the guy we met and a few others in the town, you know, when they do black magic rituals, like it, there's I. 
imagery of the devil. And he, when I asked him about those types of rituals, he was just like, I'm just, I just help the person who's coming to me connect with the devil. Like I'm not in communication with the devil. I guide them to communicate with each other. So, so like when you were there, I guess you can only speak from your personal experience, but did you actually like feel anything? Did you have any kind of like experience? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I felt a lot of things. Um, <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> I, I definitely kept having the feeling of being like, wait, how did I get here? Like, what led to this? Um, well, other than the surrealism of yeah, like the whole thing. Of the, constantly. But, um, you know, I was with a old friend of mine who lives nearby, knew about the place and was able to kind of guide me through the experience, translate mm-hmm. for me. And... I think we had a lot of moments during the ritual he performed where we were just kind of asked to reflect on our lives and sort of things that, you know, weren't super witchcrafty, right. um, but were just meaningful in a personal way. I also think like when we would hear about these different different black magic practices and things, it kind of felt a little scary and I was surprised to be. <laughs> what, was scary, what was scary about it? Was there a sense of menace? Was there a sense of trying to do harm to people? Like when people are coming to visit him mm-hmm. for, and again, I don't, I don't want to dwell on this, but it is, it is interesting because it does seem to run the gamut, right? Mm-hmm. Like you guys were there for a cleansing and he asked mm-hmm. you to reflect on your lives and it seemed to be almost like something that would happen, you know, North of San Francisco in California, right? Like it wasn't I that distant. No, it does. You know, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it was a Calistoga. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, there's black masses and there's all this. Mm-hmm. So it really runs this gamut. And I'm curious what that felt like for you. Was there a sense of providing pathways and tools for people to do harm to each other? You know, like what, what was going on with that? Yeah, I think that's where I felt the most unsettled. Um, after we had our ritual, he kind of gave us a tour of the different spaces he had behind his house and he had there was a cave and he had this giant towering statue of the devil and you could see remnants of different things that had happened there so he was explaining that sometimes people you know he was very vague but people come and ask for they want to do harm to someone else and that can range from they want to hurt their business or someone in their family or the person owes them money and they want them to start losing money or you know there were like on this um, mantle where there was this statue of the devil, there were a bunch of voodoo dolls, or he didn't use that term, but he just, I saw them, they were little wax figurines, and they had notes wrapped around them, and I saw one that was a couple, like it was one clearly was meant to be a male, one was a female, and the female had pins through her head, Mm. And he and I was like, oh, you know, what's, yeah. (laughs) And I was like, what's that for? And he was like, someone wanted control of someone else mm. and of their mind and like oh like and know. he's sort of a neutral party in all of this it sounds like he's kind of like he connects you to forces for whatever your intent is is that kind of his position he himself is neither he's like a conduit basically. he's a conduit mm-hmm. or that's what we were what we were told and it's hard to know without having had that exact experience what the situation is. That's what he he told us. When we went through the different small towns around there and asked people about it, we heard a lot of different things. Some people were saying that, you know, seven of the brujos would get together in someone's house. And if they focused on it for a whole day, they could kill someone else in the town in three days. And they knew someone that that had happened to. And, you know, there was there's a lot of legend around it. And um, it's hard to know what what really happens, what doesn't without seeing it. But... You know, we were told that he acts as a conduit. Was there a sense that this was sort of systemic, that this was a faith? That is to say, was there sort of consistency or was it just a lot of different 
kind of ideas going around. Like he has this official title, right? Mm -hmm. Was there a sense to you that there's some sort of structure and consistency almost like a church would have? Was it that kind of organized or was it just a sort of more diffuse kind of um, set of kind of practices and, 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 and ideas? Um, I would say some of both. I think, you know, there are certain rituals that happen every single year there that the entire community participates in. They've been happening for, you know, no one seems to even know really how long. Um, About how many people is it? I'm in the town? Yeah. Pull up an actual number. I want to say it's like twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. It's pretty big. It's not a. T- it's, it's not, not a it, hamlet. But this particular no. brand of sorcery, I guess, I'm wondering, is it particular just to this town, or like? It's. Is this like um, a chain? Is, th- is there like a club? I don't think there? I'd be able to like say definitively, right, but right. from there were a lot of things that I recognized from other parts of Latin America. Mm-hmm. So there were Got like okay. the sorcerers specifically felt really unique to there, even so it's though it's like I a dialect kind of. But it's yeah. Like, okay. But I know it exists in other areas. I think what's really fascinating and what's coming out of this conversation, but I think also came through in your piece, is that a lot of the times this like sacred travel, sure, sometimes like you're really looking for more in the sense of like something from the meta beyond or whatever to some sort of revelation. But I think what you do get, regardless of it, like, you know, I I know you had some experiences on that trip, at least from working with you on the piece of like self-reflection and things like that, which are really good and important. But I think one of the biggest takeaways was like how exposing yourself to these other religions, these other belief systems, it's just like, it's just another, such a great like educational experience to have, uh, such a good like insight into a culture because religion and belief plays such integral roles to cultures. So like by like kind of, you know, signing up for these treatments and like really embedding yourself, you get this like amazing insight into what makes this culture so unique in this one little pocket of Mexico. And I think for me, that's one of the biggest appeals of sacred travel. It's less like, the church to go pray in, which, but I know that for some people that is super important, you know, or the mosque to go pray in. We have a great piece in the package by Sarah Khan about how she visits a mosque everywhere she goes. But for me, so much of it is like how it's religion has played such an important role in history and in culture and the formations of cultures that it's such an incredible insight into those cultures. And like Betsy, you did that piece um, where you interviewed that photographer about. Wyatt Gallery. Yeah. That's his real name, ladies and gents. It's quite the name for a photographer. <laughs> his last yeah. name is Gallery. But the piece is about the legacy of the Jews in the Caribbean, which I've been Jewish for all 26 years of my short life, and I didn't know there were any of us down there. So. Right, but it makes perfect <laughs> sense once you dug into it, though. Yeah, no, it makes because, absolutely and, and, perfect uh, sense. You know, I, had, I was just down in Colombia, and there's mm-hmm. a history in Cartagena, there's a an Inquisition museum, right? right? And it and yeah. I, it, what it made me think of is, you know, this was Jews who were exiled from Europe during mm-hmm. the Inquisition between 1400 and 1700. Yeah. And so they went, like everybody else from Europe or lots of other people from Europe, went to the New World, but they went to particular pockets of the New mm-hmm. World. Yeah. Um, and particularly to places that were controlled by the Dutch because at that time the Dutch were very, um, I guess, empathetic to the situation. Not even just empathetic to the situation of the Jews, but also they realized that Jews were an economic force to be right. reckoned with and they wanted to bring them, you know, they wanted to open their doors to them in the New World to try to, you know, drum up economic 
economic prosperity. And I mean, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I had no idea. So they were kind of like exiled off of the Iberian Peninsula and went down to these places like islands like Curacao and countries on the South American coast of the Atlantic like Suriname. Um, places that kind of like made sense geologically and set up these incredible like flourishing civilizations, um, and which is what I think is so crazy. Which is so interesting because like not only are you you know potentially traveling to see these landmarks, but right. like the landmarks themselves are the lasting evidence of sacred oh, yeah. travel. You know, yeah. the fact that these Jews crossed the water and set up a synagogue or a community center or a cemetery, everything else or anything else. Right. You know, it's like the Hindu temples that blanket Bali yeah. are just evidence of. Something an empire from the subcontinent moving right. into Southeast Asia. Well, it's also like, and I thought maybe you can tell us more about the phenomenon of the sand floors. I was yeah. just going to ask about that. That was so interesting. These are, I think, the only synagogues in the world, basically, that have these sand-covered floors. So instead of your traditional tile or ceramic or, like, what what have you in your traditional synagogue, they actually have, like, sand over wooden boards on the floor. And one of the, you know, predominant theories about that is because during the Inquisition, when people were being converted to... They have a term called converso, which is someone who they converted from Judaism to Catholicism, and then they would call them, oh God, I want to say Muranos, if you converted to Catholicism and your conversion was thought to be false. So it's kind of a pejorative term. But anyway, so the sand floors are basically thought to have been this like sound barrier. So if you were in a temple or a synagogue and you were praying, people would be less likely to hear you if you had sand floors which makes it, it absorbs the sound yeah. which makes sense um but i thought about it and this goes back to your seb you mentioned syncretism and then it also i think to, to draw a thread to what you were seeing in mexico and what i am still writing about in mexico <laughs> um, is you're gonna get there though i'm gonna get there i'm too deep in now um is turn into a book at this point yeah, just keep right. going um is is this notion of a, a collision or mm-hmm. a, a blending of cultures, right? right? Where you've got, you know, and the Catholic Church is so often behind this in one way or another mm-hmm. because you've got a culture from one place kind of clashing for one reason or another with a local practice. Now, in this case, with the sand floors, it's not exactly that, but it right. is, again— you know, melding. Yeah. And I think coming to the new world was not mm-hmm. necessarily a way to escape the Inquisition. Right? right. The Inquisition was strong in the new world. Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it was everywhere. And so they were kind of forced not only to go into these pockets where the Catholic Church was perhaps a little bit weaker or less kind of uh, dominant mm-hmm. than it was in other parts right. of the new world, but also they were forced to hide, you know, right. which is, you know, I don't know, like my mind went to things like Kaipo. Caipuera in um, yeah. in mm-hmm. Brazil, which was yeah. a, a radically different version of that, but it was also hiding your true culture in a guise that sort of like you know outwardly looks to the the, the threatening culture, mm-hmm. you know, like a completely different thing. Well, I mean, so I think one of the things that I learned was that Peter Stuyvesant, who was basically, as I understand it, in control of the Dutch territories in the New World, um, probably most notably New Amsterdam, which became New York, um, he really did not like Jews, like big shocker, and he didn't want to let them in. But the Dutch government was like, nah, sorry, Pete, like they're coming. Um, So they came and they established, you know, these flourishing communities um, in Dutch territories. Um, But yeah, I mean, I learned so many interesting things through this conversation with Wyatt, um, one of them being that the Jews were actually really, who knew they were really instrumental in helping the Americans win the revolution because they helped smuggle, you know, like weapons and arms and ammunition up to North America. Also, I didn't know that um, 
these Caribbean synagogues were actually the oldest in the Western Hemisphere. Because, like, really, I thought Cat's Deli in New York was, like, the <laughs> oldest. You know what I mean? Um, but, yeah, and I think one thing that he stressed that was really interesting to me is drawing this parallel between, like, I think in Judaism it's, like, carrying on the legacy of Judaism like, you know, the practices, the religion, the culture, kind of like the whole shebang is very important to document for posterity and for future generations because of all the things that have happened to Jews historically. And, you know, I guess the fact that they, you know, have not been stamped out. Um, and so carrying this forward was a really integral part of being Jewish in modern times. And that was something that he, you know, used as inspiration when he went to photograph these different places because he had been in Haiti right after the earthquake and he saw their, you know, their huge cathedral just in a pile of ruins. And he thought to himself, well, if no one has documented this, just like if no one has documented these other synagogues throughout the Caribbean and South America, who's going to remember? Who's going to know what was there? So I thought, you know, drawing the parallel and using that as a motivation for doing all this work and putting together this collection of amazing photographs was pretty interesting. Megan, did you, one thing that occurred to me, I guess there's two things. One, the Catholic Church was actually really good in some cases at melding itself with local traditions in order to get people to kind of come into the fold, right? And you saw this in um, in Catamaco, mm -hmm. and I saw it in uh, this town in Chiapas, which is a little further south, mm -hmm. called San Juan uh, Chamula, mm -hmm. where the church... Um, there was no witchcraft as far as I know, but again, witchcraft is like this blurry line, blurry thing, right? <laughs> like it's it, and to some people, it's anything that falls outside of the Catholic doctrine, right? Exactly. So it could be it could be interpreted in a number of ways. Yeah, know? and to some extent, a lot of what's going on there Judaism. is Judaism. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Well, I'm sure at a certain yes. time in a certain yeah. place. Yes, yeah. absolutely, Inquisition. But the willingness of the church to kind of bend its rules, like in this church in San Juan Chamula. It's like a regular church kind of on the outside, more or less. Looks like, you know, a humble kind of church. It's a very small town, very poor. But inside, mm -hmm. the floors are completely devoid of pews. There are no there are no pews there, and the floor is covered with, like, pine needles and candles. Mm -hmm. And they did that because they were trying to convert the local um, na the, 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 like the pagans, indigenous population basically. who were, like, similar to yeah. the Sardinian, um, you know, that... I mean, we can talk about that separately, but I think it was interesting to me that that was one of the last regions of Italy to convert to Catholicism, right, right? In, in Sardinia. So we can talk about that in a second, but I think it's related, where they're trying to get people in, and those people were used to worshiping in the forest. Yeah, I think, mm. I mean, I think what, that reminds me of a couple of things, but in, when I kept asking people why did this, you know, this town specifically of Catamaco and this region in this area in Veracruz have such an interesting spiritual side and type of religion, um, witchcraft, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of the reason people told me is there's a mountain range that kind of blocks it off from other parts of Mexico. And I don't know the exact timelines of all this, but like I know when roads were being built in or in different parts of Mexico and train tracks and other things, it was a lot harder to penetrate this area. So these like Tuxas mountains protected it for a while, which allowed it to persevere. And you know, the church arrived there later. And I think what was interesting is people would refer to certain things. Um, and this is why it was so great having my friend Tanya there because she's originally from Guadalajara and was able to kind of see things as like, oh, that's actually something people talk about in other parts of Mexico. And um, people would talk to us about Nawals, which is like, 
a person that's able to turn into an animal. Mm-hmm. And which is, you know, an indigenous belief of... Um, it's also my Dungeons and Dragons character. Yes, so. I was just going to say, it sounds so familiar. <laughs> and, uh, um, <laughs> now the world knows what I do on Tuesdays. <laughs> yep. It's not ski ball. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm blinking on the name. The Olmex? Uh, the Olmex, yeah. The Olmex are like the oldest indigenous population in Mexico. They were in that area. And walls are a belief that comes from them. And it's really interesting because when we were asking people for, you know, who's a good sorcerer we can see, like, who's the best to get a treatment by? And people would tell us, like, oh, you should go to this guy because his dad was in a wall. Or, like, mm. they were still talking about these things that date back so far. So I thought that was really interesting. But um, what Betsy was saying actually reminded me of in the north of Brazil, in Salvador de Bahia. I don't know if anyone's heard of this church, but there's this church that, you know, when a lot of slaves were brought over, they were forced to build these Catholic churches. And there's one where all the imagery of the different saints and things, all their faces have been like, are done yeah. as the indigenous, right. yes. you know, gods huh. and everything. And yes. I, and I, that's yeah. just I mean, so, it's, it, it's, it's not the only case of yeah. that. That no, again, totally. it's like, yeah. it's really interesting. It's why like uh, to bring up Bali again, it's like why Hinduism looks so different in Bali than it does in India. You know, like they're both, mm-hmm. they both tell stories from the same epics. You know, it's the same deities they're talking about, but the actual rituals have come to be so divergent and it's because there's literally an ocean in between right mm-hmm. so i think i think it's that's fascinating to see as a traveler too to like you know whether it's church to church or temple to temple or mosque to mosque to just see how like things have evolved and how culture and history play yeah. such an important role in it yeah totally can we talk about the hajj yeah i think we need to talk about the hajj because Catherine dug into this. Catherine, who's one of our editors and a writer for us. Yes, pour one out for KLG. <laughs> yeah, and an I wish she could, could have been here. She's traveling right now because that's a thing we do. Um, <laughs> but she really dug into it from a couple of different perspectives that I thought she synthesized really well and kind of brought it to life. For me, which, you know, you everybody knows about the Hajj, of course, but I really loved how she dug in and got on, not only she the quantifies pers- it. Well, it's she like- quantifies it, but she also gets to the the actual experience of it by talking right. to a number of people about the experience of it and from a variety of points of view. But then this is also one of the things that was fascinating to me is what a big business this is and how the travel industry in the region organizes itself around this. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the scale or can we talk about yeah. the scale of this thing? Yeah, I mean well, and you've seen okay. a lot of it in Indonesia as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, so I, I remember my first, like, revelation of the Hajj existing even was kind of like middle school. I was living in Indonesia, and, you know, that time of year would come around. So can we say just, like, for people, I don't want to make assumptions for people who don't know. Right. What is one of the, the Hajj? One of the, the, the five pillars of Islam, you know, along with, like, the profession of faith, prayer, giving alms, um, and fasting and abstinence during Ramadan, the month of Ramadan, is the pilgrimage to Hajj, which is the original pilgrimage that Muhammad is said to have made uh, to Mecca. The Hajj is, goes to Mecca. Um, and so 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, they're all, at least if they're following... All to one, they all have to go... At least once in their at life. At least to, once in your life, you must to go this place. to this place. If um, you are able. If you are, if you are physically able Financially to go. Financially also. Um, and my first exposure to it was living in Indonesia as a teenager, which is the most populous Muslim country in the world, and seeing when, at the time around Hajj, an entire terminal would be closed off and it would become the Hajj terminal. 
and it's so literally crazy. just Wild. flights to Saudi Arabia from Jakarta. Um, and you'd look, you'd like peek in, and it's just like wall to wall, people sitting on the ground waiting for their flight. Um, wow. And it's because the, it's just a sudden, such a sudden spike. Because also, what I found interesting, and I actually didn't know the details of this until Catherine reported this out, was that the government of Saudi Arabia basically exerts a lot of control over the Hajj, including the tourism industry mm-hmm. and everything around it. And so that all 1.8 billion Muslims don't go at once, basically, <laughs> uh, the government of Saudi Arabia basically has quotas every year based on the population of Muslims in that country. Yeah. So, so you have to register with your, like how does that with, work? So there's like, there's licensed tour operators, you licensed by the government. You must take a licensed tour up. You must go. use a licensed tour operator, right? Yeah. That's a requirement. And, and so they'll say like, I think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I might be wrong here, but I think Saudi Arabia gets the highest because it's in Saudi Arabia. But then after that, it's like this many Indonesians right. are allowed to go to Hajj this year. After that, if you're an Indonesian citizen, sorry, tough luck. Next year, you got to try. Um, and, and Malaysia then, gets like the biggest allocation other than Saudi Arabia. Indonesia. Right? Indonesia. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Indonesia okay. does. Okay. Because, because, because it's, it's the most population. Yes, yeah. right. So okay. they, they figure out the math. I think I asked Catherine which was the lowest because I was curious. Yeah. And it was... I think it was some Scandinavian country or something. Or somewhere <laughs> in because every country has the Muslims, right? But it might just be that it's like Sweden, like 12 people from a certain Sweden country are, are going, <laughs> at least citizens of that country. Um, so then, so then, yeah, then you have to go with a, with a licensed tour operator. Um, there's certain things you have to perform while you're there, in, including circling the Kaaba. Yeah. That's what it's called. Right? I think also um, we should probably say like you're not allowed to, I think go to the Kaaba if you're not Muslim. You're not allowed right? to enter Mecca. You're right. not, not allowed Muslim. to enter Mecca. Right. I just yeah. want to like clarify that right. for yeah. people so who are like, So if you were about oh, to book, like, don't cool. go. Like, don't I would love bother. to do which this is, Which is also, thing. we should point out, the Herculean task Catherine yeah. had in reporting this because she is, to be transparent, <laughs> she is not a Muslim. Um, and so, you know, she was looking at this story from like how they pull this off because you're talking, so... The Saudi government estimates that the number of people circling the Kaaba, mm-hmm. uh, which is the holy site in Mecca, mm-hmm. is around 107,000 people per hour in, in the, d- during Hajj. And, and then, then somebody who, <laughs> Catherine asked somebody who oh, went there uh, about that number, and their response was, that seems low. Yes, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> really? Only 100,000? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if you've ever seen pictures of it, it kind of does seem... Like, I don't know. I mean, if you think about like so many people. Though. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you think about like a well, two football stadiums filled yeah, like with visual. Okay, so we can, we can insane. We can like, um, think about a I don't know. Think about like a college football game in the south and then just like double that. Right. It, and everyone's it, walking in the same direction. Right. Around but one item. just so just to just to quantify it. Two million people make the pilgrimage every year, right? And we're not talking about a gigantic place. Right. That's just for context. Catherine gets into this. That's four times the number of people that went to the Rio Olympics. And Rio is a giant, you know, city, a sprawling city. So you're talking about a tremendous number. It's of it's also what I think is very interesting too, in in terms of what we were talking about of it developing as a business and developing as a just like developing a, an infrastructure into itself. Um, it's 20 times the number of people who performed Hajj in 1924. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, you're talking about an ever-shrinking world. It's easier. You know, there's more flights. There's more 
the Malaysian Airlines has an entire no. Let's subsidiary. talk. Yes, that was amazing. So, yeah. so Wait, Etihad, one quick was question: Emirates. What is the duration of time in which you can perform it's like the August Hajj? and September, right? It's, it's two it's, months. It's based on the lunar calendar, so yeah. it changes okay. every year. Yeah, um, but it is around that area of like but August, it, September. It's like then. a two-month period. Yeah. Or something. yeah. Okay. And so, and nice so weather. again, <laughs> Kath, this is all Catherine. Like. Emirates last year added 57 flights wow. in order to support pilgrimages. Malaysia Airlines this year is adding an entire terminal, if I'm not No, mistaken. they're adding an entire subsidiary As, Oh, I'm sorry. That's that's right. What? They're adding a subsidiary airline that is entirely what? devoted to uh, to Hajj uh, travelers. That it's like a Hajj charter operation, basically, where it's just flights for that time of the year. Wow. They open up shop and they just fly under that banner. Yeah. And I mean the hotel society. infrastructure that that has to be developed there is just crazy. Well, well, is there crazy, anything crazy, else crazy. that like operates on this scale at all ever? Not even no. any time of the year? No. Well, there's not So it isn't the largest gathering of humanity based on religion. Burning Man? <laughs> <laughs> it's waiting for someone to come Coachella. in with a good punchline um, that really it's actually hit the, spot. the the Hindu the Kumbh Mela, which is a mass Hindu pilgrimage. Around the Ganges and the Holy River and the ah, Ganges, okay. but that's domestic, basically domestic pilgrimage because people from all over India coming to for for that festival, that fair. What's so incredible at the Hajj is how global it is mm -hmm. and how like in the age of you know jet airliners and everything else, how like the travel world has the travel industry has been forced to respond to it and build an entire system around it as well because you have people coming from Indonesia, the United States, like all over the world descending. For this purpose, um, and so there's the hotels over it, you know, that have developed around it. There's tour operators. Saudi Arabia is building a couple of like high-speed train lines to better shuttle people between like yeah. Medina Jeddah and, and, and Medina and Mecca and Jeddah and like these mm -hmm. hubs where people are flying into. And the range that they have to deal with too, because you've got people who are poor and who yeah. are sort of I, people who have been saving their entire life to take yeah, this trip. That, that I think Catherine captured this really well. This was intriguing to it was staggering to me, I guess. The cost to different types of travelers mm -hmm. from different parts of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So, for a person from Malaysia, it can cost you approximately fifty percent of a year's salary to do wow. the pilgrimage, right? For a person from Bangladesh, three years of work can go um, into taking this pilgrimage. And so you've got these tour, and everybody, remember, must use a tour operator. So you've got these tour operators that are, do that are taking everything from people who are staying in tents in yeah. various places um, to people who are staying in luxury accommodations and taking, you know, kind of like, not limousines, but, you know, like vehicles from place to place right. and being shuttled around. So you've got this incredible range of services that have to have been you know, sprung up around this over the course of the last many, many, many years. And this it's amazing, but it's also like, like, I'm just obviously curious. it would, right? Obviously there's yeah. something would build around this. Yeah. You know? Like, do, um, do we know if tour operators have like inflated, like have done price gouging? Like I'm fascinated. Yes, she to gets know. into that a little bit in the piece and obviously not, certainly not uh, everyone, but there are cases of right. this. 
and the the government has been I, I don't remember the details from the piece people can read it and and see there but she does talk to a mm-hmm. couple of people and she does cite a couple of cases where you know um, there needs to be more monitoring yeah right. and there's, some there's of this stuff. there are cases of people paying a bunch of money up front and then they mm-hmm. arrive and nothing is they don't they have, have their stuff they don't have a place right. to stay they don't fire have festival. any there's they're, fire festival. they're in their yeah, fire festival <laughs> but hot. they're in Jeddah and they have nowhere to go from there yeah you know? I mean because if you can only go through a provider and the provider has screwed you or is like inflating it to an insane degree that like you can't afford it or it takes you a certain amount of time that just seems so like against the very notion of what the whole thing is yeah and she gets into that too which i thought was really kind of great is the other thing that happens is again back to this notion of crowding and so anytime you get that many humans in proximity to each other, all of whom have a similar objective, you're going to have competition and people are going to be fighting for space and for well, resources and so forth. Concerns. Yeah. So. Well, there, there has been, there have been major, yeah. major incidents where literally yeah. hundreds to thousands of people have died in stampedes in the Hajj. Yeah. So, yeah, in 2015, there was, yeah. a, there was a stampede of 2,000 people, right? Yeah. And I think wow. one of the things that she gets into and talks to a couple of uh, people who've been on it is it can feel violent sometimes unintentionally, right? Mm-hmm. Just because of that. The sheer number of... I mean, if you've but been I, saving up for 10 years to yeah. go on this trip and you're there and you're... you're can't get a view. Minutes from touching the Kaaba, like, yeah. it's going to be, really you're going to make a rush for Listen, it. Listen, I, like, I have been to an Alesso concert, and that was too much for me. Like, I cannot imagine 107,000 other people. Not Catherine, but one of the people that she talked to made a really good point, which is the Hajj is not just a material thing. It's not just about going to the place. It is a spiritual journey. And so one of the things that is supposed to be part of that when you, if you engage in that kind of behavior, in other words, this person was saying, you're really kind of violating what the Hajj is all about. Mm-hmm. And you have not, if you go and you sort of treat it like this competition, you know, in some sense, you actually haven't done the Hajj because right. the Hajj is is meant to be a spiritual journey as well as, and that entails how you treat other people and how you sort mm-hmm. of comport yourself in it, which I thought was a really great point, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. yeah. there's, there is this overarching you know, yes, it's about going to this place, but it's different from other kinds of tourism, which a lot of this spiritual tourism is, right? Like we we go to lots of places, we want to check boxes, we want to cross things off of lists, and certainly there's that aspect here, but there's also this aspect of participating in a community and being a good participant in that community mm-hmm. that is bigger than that. Right, which applies to the travel, the, the casual traveler too, that, yeah. you know, the non-Muslim who visits a mosque, like... Right. You need to you need to know how to comport yourself. Like mm-hmm. you are definitely a guest in this environment. You right. know, this isn't your home turf. There's lessons to be taken from that. Right. Well, to even the non-religious. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and for what it's worth, like I feel like that's how we try and think about travel as well. Is just like stepping back from it all, like having an experience rather than going there, checking it off, saying you did it, and like whether that's spiritual travel or anything mm-hmm. else. Like that's kind of the lens we're always trying to look at it through, and like what you should try and achieve when you go somewhere is like mm-hmm. really experience it for whatever you're there for rather than just show up and get a picture. Which I'll say you did fully in Catemaco, <laughs> yeah. Mexico. You did not fuck around. When, uh, with the when sorcerers. you let someone rub an egg all over you. I think that <laughs> multiple was like, people, multiple yeah. eggs. Oh my God. Oh. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have to exercise the same, yeah, the way you talk about how you comport yourself and how it's so much more than the selfie. But I mean, that can also be like challenging and, and compromising sometimes because when I went to Israel, I went on birthright, which like for those of you who don't know what birthright is, the state of Israel pays for you to 
go to Israel and like check it out it, like really intensely for 10 days and um yeah but anyway you it can be really frustrating because I remember going to the Western Wall and because it's like an orthodox location it's divided along you know gender lines so there's a men's section which is like really nice and air-conditioned and it's like cleaned all the time and then there's like a women's area which is kind of like run down and doesn't have air conditioning because obviously and you have to really cover yourself up like there are people who are not allowed into the area if your shoulders are exposed or like you know your calves or things like this so I don't know it can be like you do have to comport yourself but it w can also challenge you in ways that you may not oh, yeah, have, like, it will expect it like, yeah that's what sometimes what we look for in travel though yeah too, right? no you I know? mean it's good but I'm saying Throwing in a frustrating way as opposed to like well because it exposed this is one of the interesting things about so you you raise this issue of sort of men and women historically being mm -hmm. treated differently in certain religions almost all of them like I think we can say um, and thumbs up to the Ashanti sorry <laughs> keep going now <laughs> One of the things I thought was interesting about the Hajj is that this is one of the few occasions on which women and men can actually worship together. Right. Conventionally, they mm -hmm. are not allowed to worship right. together. Right. And on the Hajj, they can, um, which I thought was interesting. You also raised this notion of um, proper comportment in uh, you know, a church or a mosque or a synagogue mm -hmm. or, or, or whatever. And I'm wondering if you guys have ever encountered that situation where, you know, you go into, I've seen this all over Europe, really, but uh, certainly in Italy and Spain, where, you know, you are not supposed to, as a, it mostly applies to women, so stipulated, right? Right. They tend to have more regulations around what women are allowed to wear and, mm -hmm. and where they sit and, and what they do. Yeah, right. I mean. And so you go into a church and you're asked to put something over your shoulders, oh, yeah. right? Because it's oh, summertime yeah. and you're, you're wearing like a shirt that doesn't have shoulders yeah. or whatever. I think they do that. Uh, that there's That's a big business over at the Vatican because there are right. people who, vendors who sell scarves and stuff like right outside of the museums because they, you can wait in line. Literally, I saw someone wait in line for like three hours and not get in because her shoulders were bare right. and had to go pick up like some shitty scarf off right. the sidewalk. I mean, it's right. the same, yeah, in mosques and stuff that you visit as well you know? yeah um and most of the time it does affect women more than men like i'm cool with a t-shirt and jeans but right you know yeah. women might not be yeah um i mean i assume that all of you like me have traveled to places and visited churches mosques synagogues as historical locations or in the case of the vatican you raised the vatican right and uh, saint peter's St. Peter's is a museum. It's right. a world-class museum that is also a church. It's a it's a functioning mm -hmm. church. The square outside of St. Peter's is a functioning religious environment. Have you guys ever found yourselves, you know, tense around perhaps services or people in church? Like I've I've been this many many occasions where people are actually in the church praying. If if, if service may may not be happening, but people are there, and they're actually you know, praying or engaged right. in some And you're like, wow, sick and fresco. Yes. Like, <laughs> have you, you know, how do you guys negotiate? Have you ever had that happen? And how do you negotiate that sort of tension as a visitor? Yeah, I think it's, I can say it's happened many, many, many times because I'm just for my personal who I am, like I'm rarely in one of these places to worship. You know, I'm there to admire architecture and think about history and mm -hmm. think about other things because that's just, you know, where I landed in my belief system. But like, 
I don't know. I was also raised Catholic. I've gone through all of the Catholic things. I am confirmed, and if that's what it takes, I'm going to have it. So <laughs> did not um, know. <laughs> so I, I understand this, the, the somber nature of it and everything too. So I, I think that has happened to me before. I mean, I don't know how I navigate it besides just like keeping my mouth shut and trying to blend into the shadows. Yeah. But like, um, it does feel. I mean, what do you I, I feel think like about? I'm there. I feel like I'm there to admire, to respect. You know. So I, I don't yeah. know if it's necessarily a problem i mean if i was somebody who like lived in the neighborhood of like notre dame in paris and like was just like you wouldn't want anybody there. just very <laughs> pissed off every sunday when you're just trying to go to mass and there's a line out the door like yeah. might be different but yeah. i don't know as as the casual wandering curious traveler i don't know if i've ever I, maybe i need to think about it more because i don't know if i ever thought about myself as necessarily like invasive into mm -hmm. these spaces yeah have you ever found yourself yeah. sort of thinking like oh i'm really this is not cool like i should not be here right now no but maybe i need more self-awareness you know um <laughs> you're so mean <laughs> <laughs> i don't uh, know the world revolves around me they can, yeah. <laughs> no i i i uh yeah i mean i i think i just like i put on the extra respectful vibes when I'm in that kind of environment, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Have you ever taken a trip that you would consider a sacred travel trip, a, a spiritual trip? Never intentionally, I think. <laughs> you know, I don't think I ever went to like, you know, I don't know. You thought forest like, bathing was going to be a bust. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't think it would be like a spiritual awakening. You know, it's never been like, I'm going to go, I haven't taken the like, I'm going to go meet Mama Ayahuasca trip, you know? I think the times I've had what I would consider spiritual experiences, whether it was like on a mountain in Zimbabwe or like on a beach in Indonesia, the only person on an island in Indonesia, it was un it was unexpected. And that's Serendipitous. What, yeah, and that's what made it a spiritual experience to me mm -hmm. was the fact that it came out of nowhere and it was just like... Now, has that ever happened to you in a context that would be more classically sort of like religious or spiritual. I once passed out in a church in India, that which was kind of scary. Your <laughs> drinking habits are not a part of this. No, it had nothing to do with drinking. It was really weird. And it's actually happened a couple of times where I've gotten lightheaded in churches. Because like I said, I, used to, I mean, it might be all that standing and sitting down. Standing Megan, and sitting down. you got anything to say? I mean... What, what would the head sorcerer say? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that, that was weird. Straight up stood up How and passed times? out. I only straight up passed out once. But I've gotten like lightheaded in churches a couple of times. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think it's all the like looking up that you do? Like, no, <laughs> it's a serious down, question. Standing up, sitting down, standing up. I don't know. I have another question for you. But first, have you guys ever sort of intentionally taken a trip for this purpose? Besides Burning Man, Betsy. <laughs> but. Yeah, I am a rager, guys, sitting here with my non-alcoholic water. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I mean, I guess sort of intentionally birthright is like a very explicitly Jewish trip. Um, are, you, are you religious? Cause that uh, can be a couple no. of different things. I mean, right? I am like a, your typical Northeast Jew in the sense that I'm like super culturally Jewish, yeah. like love me some good bagels and locks. Like I can play Jewish geography with your summer camp friends, like nobody's business. <laughs> but yeah. So, I mean, my mom was the one who really, really wanted me to go on this trip and naturally like anything that your mom really wants you to do, you're like fuck no like leave me alone mm -hmm. um but anyway after a little bit i conceded also because uh when i went the capped age to go on birthright which is a completely free trip 
like 10 days of completely free travel to Israel, hotels, flights, food, everything. Um, it was 26. They just recently extended that to 32. So I didn't go in with any great mind of like having a spiritual experience um, because I had been told, I had been warned like by many people in advance that like they try to get you to drink the Kool-Aid and like, I feel like I may have a little bit, but I think it's because you're in this, you're having this experience with, I don't know, like 40 other people you're who you're in very close proximity with visiting all of these holy really religious sites and like whether or not you intend to I don't even want to say fall for it but like kind of fall into it you certainly like feel something um we went to Masada which is if you're not familiar is like a historical site above the Dead Sea where hundreds of Jews committed suicide because they were under siege by a Roman army and yeah, I don't know that I consider myself a religious person, maybe a spiritual person, but I've never had an experience like looking out into the Dead Sea of a place that has been recorded and is so well known and is so inherently spiritual. And like, I don't know that I've ever felt anything like that before. Megan? <laughs> um, no, I, you know, my family is Christian, but we never, I never grew up super religious and I, I have memories of like going to church with my family when I was really young on Sundays because my mom told us we could have donuts after if we went. <laughs> yes. So my sisters and I were all about it. But um, mm. no, I think I haven't. And generally, like for a long time when I'd go to, you know, in Italy and go to all these beautiful churches or through Latin America and, you know, they were sites to see, I always felt pretty uncomfortable. Felt like there was a ritual of what people would do before mm -hmm. they walked in and I right. just, or Didn't when they were it. there and I had no idea what it was and I kept feeling like... Was this because you saw people doing things or just because you had this kind of paranoia about that? Both. If I saw people do things, like whether, I, I don't even know what it would be, but I would just feel like... Am I supposed to be doing that? It's what, funny because I would have the opposite effect when I walk into a church. I don't do it anymore, but when I'd walk into a church, I'd immediately, just out of habit from growing up that way, do the sign of the cross. And I'd be <laughs> like, why am I, like, I don't, it's, it's not, a reflex, yeah. It's yeah. a reflex, yeah, even though totally. I'm not like, my heart's not in it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. I, yeah. Well, and I think I felt really self-conscious because I didn't even know what that reflex was. Like, right. I remember I've been, you know, at weddings in Catholic churches and everyone will do mm -hmm. it. I'm like, where, where do you it's start? Like a language oh, it's over. You don't like, speak. Yeah. And it feels really disarming. And to be honest, like this is the first trip I've gone on, you know, going to Katamako to meet the sorcerers where I've had some spiritual intention with it. And with this, I went in just thinking like, it seems like an interesting cultural like situation. Yeah. yeah. Like, let's just see what's there. Um, and to be honest, like the biggest part of the trip, I, when I first arrived, my friend who was going to be showing me around, like hadn't, the person who was supposed to let me into her apartment hadn't shown up. And I, you know, didn't know where to go. And I was in like the main square of this little town. And they were the only place that I could see where I could sit, where I wasn't like on the street was this church that was open. Mm. It was really weird. Cause I, I had my stuff and I like had my laptop and I was really aware that I was walking around with my laptop in a place where like I stood out so much. And I went and sat in there and there were just all these people like coming in and going out. And it was really, it was the first time I realized like it was a communal space that I don't have. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. That's a, a great that's segue. Which is, huge. Yeah. is that not? Like, yeah. that's a great segue. One to... point, though, before we transition is that I also <laughs> think it's possible to have those kinds of experiences, even if it's not like something that you grew up with, which is like Absolutely. exactly what you're yeah. talking about. Like when I went to the Vatican, it's just such an extraordinary, beautiful, like incredible place where so many people have made pilgrimages to. And like there's just been so much money spent. And I don't know really how to describe it. Maybe you have a better sense for like 
But do you know what I mean? I, I like, remember, no, it's I, true. I, I, no, but this is like this is. True. I don't know. I, I, dis- I have it. a distinct memory of just to say that it's not necessarily you have to be like part of a belief right, system to have right. that experience. One of my like most distinct memories of my teenage years in Indonesia is sitting outside, under like an awning, waiting for the rain to pass. Like just <laughs> like downpour, Indonesia, Jakarta, just downpour monsoon rain, and. The call to prayer breaks out from like four different places, like north, east, south, west, just so all one by one, just like surround sound. And I'm just yeah. sitting there as like a 14 year old by myself waiting for the rain to stop. That felt totally that felt like a, a, a revelatory experience. Mm-hmm. It felt religious and it was religion at the root of it, yeah. even if it wasn't my religion. All right. So we're going to get mm-hmm. we're going to get deep here. Right. Like <laughs> first, 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 I want to I want to talk about Sarah and Laura's pieces. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to get turf it over to you a little bit but i think i had a an ex- i was in scotland last week um ironically at the same time that laura was in scotland although we were never in the same place at the same I really time i thought you guys were there so together it's, it's it's not entirely clear that, that we're really, not the same I don't person know. That fucks me up. <laughs> we've never right. been seen in the same place at the same time notice that she's not on the podcast today we could be the same person there was also i mean like i know you're big into the later gram brad but there were like you were posting photos on instagram and it was sunny and beautiful out and the same day laura was posting photos yes. from the same city and, and it was snowing one. she's the one who was writing to me on instagram saying where the hell are you? <laughs> this makes no sense. You're not talking about the same Edinburgh that I'm talking about. But one of, what I wanted to say was, um, so there's a Cathedral of St. Giles. And like obviously the history in Scotland is a lot of tension between the Anglican Church, um, the Presbyterian Church, oh, to be yeah. honest, and the Catholic Church, right? Like that was the sort of real tension that was a nationalistic tension between the Scots and the, and the English. There's a, a cathedral in Edinburgh, like right in the center on the Royal Mile, that is a cathedral in the conventional sense because it started out that way and then it became later a Presbyterian church, I think. I'm getting that right. Anyway, we were there on Easter Sunday and we were not allowed to go in. So there was a, like a, you know, everybody wants to go in because it's a big cathedral and it's beautiful. And yet there was a stream of people going in who were actual worshipers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is kind of what Laura talks about, which is you can go if you are a person of faith. One of the things that can happen around the world is that you are instantly a member of a community and that can work in two different ways. One, yeah, totally. one is a sense of sameness which is that you have an instant connection to people and institutions and practices and this this sense of familiarity um, and ritual that you have access to anywhere in the world because there are similarities no matter where you go. And at the same time, the differences, right? right? Like you have, like the people who were there to actually go to Easter services got to see something I did not get to see. Right. They were allowed into the church. They were and allowed. And experienced the place in a different way than you would ever experience exactly. it. Right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think, yeah, I think, I think she made a lot of really interesting points that like, even as someone who, like I said, had grown up Catholic, like I never even put two and two together, but the fact that she can go to a church in Quito and it's this beautifully like gilded just you know completely insane ostentatious gold tinged church and then you can go to Vegas and there's two catholic <laughs> churches on this on the strip like They're across around where? the corner around the corner <laughs> is from one like, the one where Britney Spears got married? One, one of them is literally around the corner from the Hooters Casino Hotel yes. that is so, of course and, it is and in each of those 
the mass will be pretty similar. Yes. You know, because yes. it's the Catholic <laughs> liturgy. A, it's like it might not be in Latin. The crown right. might, might not be, be in like original. <laughs> they won't be like doing curies or whatever. But it is like it's very set, and yet there's like these little differences, you know. And it's like I remember, you know, at a certain point in the Catholic mass, you turn to the person next to you and you say, "Peace be with you," and yes. all that. Yes. Um, and I remember seeing like, you know, always being used to the handshake and then you you go to some parts of the world in like Latin America or something and they're like kissing on the cheek and you're just like kissing the stranger next to you on the <laughs> cheek and like just like these little things. And I think that's really interesting. And we also had a piece that Sarah Khan wrote for us, uh, who writes for us a lot about visiting and, and she's a she's a Muslim woman and about visiting mosques wherever she goes when she travels. And it, it was really funny because I was talking to her about when we were putting together this package um, seeing if she had, you know, cause just cause she writes for us pretty frequently to see if she had ideas for, for a story. And we kind of got to this and she was like, you know, it's funny. I never even thought of this as like a story per se. It's just hmm. like something that's been part of my life. You know, hmm. she spent a lot of years in Saudi Arabia as a kid going to Mecca regularly for she's the, she's a crazy traveler, right? Yeah, like yeah, a, she's like a writer, grew up that way. Yeah. And like now is just constantly on the road. But she like talked about like going to, you know, she'd go regularly as a kid on the Umrah, which is another version of the pilgrimage to Mecca that's mm -hmm. you can do multiple times versus the Hajj, which is once, right? Um, and like just kind of taking it for granted, where it was like, oh, we're going to the, we're going on the Umrah again to Mecca, like as a kid, right? <laughs> and now she realizes like how <laughs> crazy it was that that was part of her reality when there's people who are saving up their entire lives to go on this trip once, right? Yeah. Um, but now she sees it as kind of. One, this like really fascinating uh, scope into history and culture and how different cultures have brought Islam into their, mm -hmm. you know, into, into their zeitgeist. Um, but two, again, like as this constant where she can go, she understands the process of prayer. She understands like enough Arabic to be able to communicate the basic things of like, where do I go to wash, wash up before prayer? Which way is Mecca? You know, like all these things. And it's like suddenly a constant bond with somebody from another, a complete different culture and country. And it's the mosque that allows her to do that. And so she, so like half, maybe half of it, it seems like is, you know, religious practice and religious observance, but a whole other half of it is just like another way to, to find some semblance of like home when like, cause she grew up moving around her whole life where that home doesn't really exist. So finding some semblance of home wherever you go in this community space. So now I'm going to, now's the deep part where I'm going <laughs> to, and I'm ask you a little bit. Okay. I'm not sure about you, Betsy. <laughs> what the fuck? We'll see. What do you mean? Um, but you for sure. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> which is you and Seb, I'm talking to you here now because this is kind of what I was, what I am writing about for this is you're a person who grew up like your family was religious mm -hmm. or you had at least that as part of your upbringing. Oh, I was raised like Jewish. Like Jewish. for re religious. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious what you guys, what the experience is like for you when you go to these places and you sort of bear witness uh -huh. to the structures, the practices, the artwork itself. Like, what is that like for you as a sort of perpetual outsider, but somebody who has access I mean, to your own experience? I'm going to be completely honest and we're going to get deep. If we're going to get deep, <laughs> we're going to get deep. Go deep. Um, I think I know my mom listens. My nice, my nice Catholic Colombian mother listens to this podcast. Your so, mom is royalty. So get ready, mama. Um, <laughs> I uh, 
I mean, there is a semblance at least. At least, like, if I if I were to sit through a Catholic mass now, I, is what I'm thinking right now. Like, if I were to travel somewhere in the world, even if it's like the most beautiful Catholic church you've ever seen, and I'm sitting in it, I'm I'm going through mass. I'm going through Catholic mass at Notre Dame, for example. There is a semblance of resentment that I'll feel. Really. Based on the way that I grew up looking at the Catholic Church and the feelings I had about it growing mm-hmm. up and the rebellion I had against it. Mm-hmm. There are some things that I still carry over from my teenage years from that rebellion um, that I still very strongly believe in, that I have problems with. Um, I think at the same time, and I feel this way about a lot of, not just the Catholic Church, but when I visit a mosque or when I visit, when I watch a Hindu ceremony taking place in a temple in Bali, is that there is a bit of envy too that I don't have that community to just like instantly be a part of, you know? that I can't just walk up and take part in this ceremony because I know what to do and I believe in the same things that they're believing in. I think that would be like the most incredible instant bond with somebody who had a, who grew up in a completely different world than you did. Um, and I'm, I'm forever limited to being just the observer, you know? Um, even if I'm super interested in it and I'm super respectful of it, I'm still on the outside looking in, you know? Does that play into... Because a lot of the times that we go to these places, we're appreciating art, we're appreciating architecture, right? How do those things kind I of? I mean, interact? I think those those take priority when I'm in the place. You know, uh-huh. like I'm a history nut, so right. like I'm super interested in one of my favorite places in the world is uh, the La Mesquita in in Cordoba in Spain, which was once a mo- once a church, then a cathedral, then a Mosque, then a cathedral, like literally built on top of each other. And you, you have see, to love Spain. You have, that, right? yeah. you have to like see yeah. the semblance. Yes. You, you see the leftovers of all of those things. Yes. You know, like you see the halls of the mosque, except now they're painted over with Christian frescoes. And I, I love that. I could sit in that for hours and just contemplate like what the hell was going on in this town, you know, in the 1200s. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, I think it's endlessly fascinating to me. I think it's more just like, you know, reading Laura's piece, reading Sarah's piece, there there is a semblance of like, man, I wish I had that. You know, yeah. yeah. Megan, <laughs> I feel like a lot of similar thoughts. Um, yeah, I think I still, for a long time, and still like there are traces of it. Feel like a rebellious teenager who's you know not going to take the pill of organized religion, and <laughs> like I, you know, just haven't been able to get on board with it for so many reasons that, you know, and it just, I never see myself being a religious person, but like this, yeah, this trip was like the first time that I felt like sad that I just saw like all these people coming together and, you know, through, throughout the trip in Mexico, like people would, you know, shaman would give me a cleanse and then give me an amulet or like a woman would, I went to this woman's house for, a you know, the cleanse with the eggs that Seb mentioned and at the end she was rubbing four leaf clover oil on my wrists and my knees and my temple and like kissing me before I got in the car and like doing all these things where I felt like my gosh someone cares so much about me and even though I don't really believe that this four leaf clover oil on my knees is going to protect me like it's so nice that the stranger cares to do that for me and like I don't see myself becoming religious but it I definitely like grasped what I won't have. It it's also, fascinating. Sorry, sorry. It also <laughs> seemed from the piece that like you came to a place where it was kind of like, all right, should I believe that this cleanse like really cleansed me? Maybe like who fucking cares? Because 
the rest of the people around me do and yeah. like if that's what is what it's that's what sustains this culture like or that's what is such an integral part of this culture who am i to say like no, that's impossible. An egg's not going to tell you whether you have an ulcer or not, you know? <laughs> Even though I still am nervous I have an ulcer after she told me that. <laughs> but but I, th- I think that's like a great place to come to where it's like that that just create that breeds an entire new level of cultural respect and everything where it's like, who the hell am I to say, you know? Well, and, and then like that to get back to my views on religion is like, I'm like, well, I believe the egg as much as anything else. Like, mm-hmm. so I either <laughs> believe none of it or I believe all of it. And the jury's still out. But I don't know. I... I definitely feel, felt very conflicted when I came back and just like, wow, like I, I felt like I really finally understood the thing that I don't participate in before I didn't really get what it meant to people. And then I just felt like I got to see it so wholly. So. Beth, sounds like you have the feels. <laughs> on this. I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe I should also extend an apology to my mom before we start talking. Um, all the moms are so disappointed in this podcast. She expects it. Uh, so when I was growing up, we really didn't practice until I was like probably eight. We were pretty like lax about doing the Jewish thing. And then around that time, my mom decided she wanted to go like whole hog, like modern Orthodox. You don't really mean whole hog. Oh, but I do. I do. I believe strongly in trace. Um, Yeah, no. So we were in this weird position where like, I grew up in this town that was like, I want to say like 85% Jewish of people who went to like these really nice, fancy reform and conservative synagogues. And I went to this like Orthodox Chabad synagogue, which was actually like in a house, which is very common for a lot of these like Chabad. It's like a an Orthodox sect of Judaism. And it's often just like in somebody's house, like kind of this makeshift like prayer space, this kind of like awkward, not very formal situation. Um, and I think for a long time that had always felt like kind of strange to me because it's like, I wasn't fully in the Orthodox thing, obviously, but I also wasn't part of this like reform conservative community that seemed to like not to offend, but kind of seemed to have its like shit together a lot more than the Chabad community. Um, But I found it actually really lovely. Like when I went to Israel and when I got back of like the experience of going to these different Chabad synagogues, like around the world. And I went to one when I was living, when I was studying abroad in France too. And to everybody's point about this, like, you know, very community driven about the very community driven nature of religion. Um, I found it so lovely that when I go to these different countries in these different places, however, I feel about Judaism and these different branches of Judaism at home, that when I go to these different places, I feel so welcome. And often the traditions and like even the food, like literally tastes the same. Cause like kosher food is not, not the jam unless you're in Israel. Um, but yeah, I mean the experience of it, you know, away from home is very similar and it allows for a community. And actually I I really enjoy it. It's not, it's nice. It's not, um, I don't feel like an outsider, um, looking in when I'm in those situations. In fact, it's like one of those few moments where I'm like, Oh, this is pretty chill. Like past the Manischewitz. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) on that note, (laughs) and what about you, Brad? (laughs) Well, no, I mean, in this, we talked about this a little bit when I promised to write the thing that I <laughs> am still writing for this. So I got married in a Catholic church, right? And I, you know, growing up, I come from like a Methodist family, went to Catholic school for two, three years when I was very young, and so got acquainted with all of those rituals and sort of that practice. 
And so there's like this portion of my background that is like very acquainted with this. But as a as an adult person, you know, I'm very atheistic, agnostic, whatever the term, I'm not sure what the term is, but you know, not a not a practicing person of faith. And I've spent a lot of time, including my own wedding, weirdly enough, you know, um, in I can't wait for this piece yeah, in um, churches, you know, in Europe, mostly Catholic, right? Okay. Because that's kind of the tradition there. Um, and it's one of those things that it, it is an anchor. It is it is a repository of art and architecture. You know, it, it just was and culture and culture like, yeah, and, and, and where f- people went on Sunday. Yeah. Know? Yeah. But I think one of the earliest experiences of this that I had in Italy was going to St. Peter's. And there's a statue mm-hmm. of St. Peter in St. Peter's in the Basilica that people actually, pilgrims, which is the appropriate word, right. line up oh, to yeah, touch. Oh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah. Right? And the foot, okay, so this is very vivid for me, right? Like St. Saint, Peter's Basilica is truly one of the most magnificent yeah. repositories of Western cultural art in the world. Yeah. You know, you have sculpture and statues by Michelangelo. Um, uh, Bernini. Bernini. So, you know, you have... Some of the most magnificent pieces in Western cultural history by Michelangelo, Bernini, um, truly, truly amazing stuff. And then you have the structure itself, which is, you know, an architectural marvel and just a beautiful place to be. And it is a functioning church at the same time. Right. It's the Pope's house. Um, St. Peter was the first pope. And it kind of blends all of these things together. But for me, that moment of kind of witnessing the pilgrims kind of lining up to touch this because what happens is St. Peter's foot, the statue of St. Peter, which was done by a sort of second rate, like not important sculptor. And I don't mean any disparagement. But look who's laughing now. No, cause... no, I don't mean any disparagement. It's just, you know, like it wasn't Bernini, right? Like right. Saint, the St. Saint Peter that everybody wants to touch was not done by Michelangelo or Bernini. St. Peter by some dude. <laughs> no, I, I actually know what dude, but I can't remember his name right now. Anyway. <laughs> Neither can anyone else, though. That's the problem. <laughs> that's, that's the point. But the foot is completely worn away. And so what has happened is that there have been centuries of people traveling to this place with the intent of touching that foot. And first, the, the original practice was to actually kiss the foot, right. right? And there's a whole sort of history around feet and, you know, the washing of feet and the touching of feet. No, no, I don't mean it like that. I mean it for real. Like, And the thing that struck me as a non-believer in witnessing this was the incredible profundity of that moment Mm -hmm. of people touching that foot. And the wearing away of the foot was actually an incredibly profound thing to me in terms of what it spoke to in terms of human feeling and need and sort of practice and all these things that we've kind of been talking about, which is that people have invested themselves in this and that it means something to them. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but it kind of resonated with what I know of the ritual of communion, where you're actually, you are ingesting the body of Christ, which is nourishing you. And the same thing was happening in a weird way with the foot, right? Like people are coming and touching the foot and they're deriving a kind of spiritual nourishment from that. And there's something super profound about that to me in terms of the relationship between these kinds of places and these institutions that are behind them. Because what was wonderful about that to me was that the church had allowed this to happen, right? The church had understood 
And this seemed incredibly generous and magnanimous to me, that the church could have walled this off. And you see this happen in other places. Again, I was just in Scotland and castles they have, in one of the castles I was in, they've got a bedroom completely kind of like glassed off, a bed completely glassed off because time is damaging it. And here you have a statue that's literally being worn away by people coming up and touching it. And the church has said, not just we're going to countenance this, but we're going to encourage this. Like we're going to we're going to allow this to happen because it's important to people. And I think the other thing that you see in a lot of these places, and I saw it, I've seen it in Spain, I've seen it in Italy, I've seen it in France, um, I've seen it in England, is that we go to these places, and this is a constant refrain of non-religious people, I suppose. You just made it, Seb, which is, I appreciate the art. I appreciate the architecture. But the truth of the matter is, if you look at many of these places, those artists did their best work in service of their faith. No, absolutely. Right? And, and, and so to me, when I go to these places, I see two things that, that I find incredibly moving. And it's not even the art itself. It's what the faith does for the people who are there. Totally. And so I go, I've seen this, I've even this happened to me in a Chinese church in Montreal, right? Like where there are people who are actually there worshiping. And to me, as a person who is not religious myself, but I really admire and don't know what to make of, quite frankly, the way that faith is able to bring out amazing qualities of people, whether they are artists like a Michelangelo or a Bernini, who sure are doing it for the commission, but they are also doing their absolute best work in the Sistine Chapel or in St. Peter's Basilica. Right. I mean, that public space at St. Peter's is among... It's, it's also, though, you cannot discount that the gold that lines the gilded cathedral in Quito that I just mentioned came from slaves no murdered inca yes you know so like absolutely all that history is part of it so i think i think it's about confronting that yes well and i i have like this you know i was talking about that church in brazil where they had slaves were forced to build the church and they'd you know change the different saints to look like the people they worshipped and i remember looking at it and the girl next to me who was spanish and i think i just assumed was catholic because she had wanted to go to this church and whatever she looked at it and it was so ornate and beautiful. And she just said, wow, another beautiful church built with poor people's money yeah. and turned around and walked yeah. out. And I like, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah, there's a lot and yet, there. And yet that same church is also the place that put the pine needles on the floor of right. Simon Chamula, mm-hmm. you know, instead of forcing them to like adhere Sit to. Sit in a pew, yeah. So like it's very complicated. I find something like incredibly human and beautifully human about this in, in a complex kind of way. I don't mean to be whitewashing what you're no, talking about. No, no, totally. About I, 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 don't, I don't see it that way. I just think, I think it is, that's the point, though, is that like traveling and thinking about these things is what really opens a whole new avenue of thinking about it, about thinking about the sacred and how it plays a role in your life or even the lives of the people around you. And so whether or not you're a believer or not, it's going to open shit up basically yeah. is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it is transformative. On that note. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good one to end on. Yeah. Don't forget to subscribe. Oh, sorry. Thanks to all of you guys for coming and having a fairly deep <laughs> oh, conversation about this. Fine, yeah, wow. I, do this um, I didn't know college again or something. <laughs> yeah. It's really great. Yeah. Fire up the bong. Um, <laughs> should have done that before the podcast. <laughs> Um, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com. 
The URL for this package, Seb, is kind of a weird one. Yeah, so it's, it's, I want to give it to people. Yeah, you know, it's a great idea. It is. Yes. cntraveler.com forward slash story forward slash sacred dash travel. Okay, that's Quickly, great. Quickly, I just want to plug Wyatt Gallery's book, Jewish Treasures of the Caribbean. Buy it. Super rad. Okay. Thanks. Sorry, Buy it Wyatt. for Wyatt. Good. Buy it for Wyatt. Um, want to give a shout out to the Women Who Travel podcast, which is in its second Season? season? Second season. Yeah, second season. Woo. And also want to thank Meredith for hosting last week, which I was really sorry to miss, the Travelog podcast. But if you guys are not subscribed to the Women Who Travel podcast, you need to be. I say that every week. I really do mean it. Um, they're doing incredible work. So go check that out and subscribe. We are on Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram and Twitter. Please do tweet at us. Uh, we would love actually to hear on this particular topic. Yeah. We would love to hear about your own experiences with this, regardless of your own personal faith situation. We'd love to hear about, do you travel for this kind of thing? How does this play into your travels? What kind of experiences have you had? We will gladly share those you know, back out to the world. We think this is a really fascinating topic and one that obviously moves all of us really um, more than I think we thought You know, yeah. getting into this. Um, so we'd love to hear from you on that. Do review us on iTunes. Bets, how can people get in touch with you should they so desire? Oh, God. I mean, if you want to. Um, I'm at bblumenthal070 on Instagram. Don't check my Twitter because it's just rage retweeting. <laughs> Megan? Um, I'm on Instagram. It's my last name with a Y at the end, at S-P-U-R-R-E-L-L-Y. Seb? I'm at Seb Modak on all the things. <laughs> and I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everybody. 